So it's, you know, really getting to know you and your credibility and, you know, what you've done in your professional career, young professional to now, that's allowed us to be confident when we say Alfredo Petrov is like a world-class mineralogist. One thing I want to say is I have an amazing, I have a, a serious amount of respect for you because of how Stan speaks about you, which is something I learned recently is the important thing, right? Like the people around you, it's what they say about you, not what you think you say about yourself, not what anything, it's what the people around you are saying. And, and I have so much respect for him and what he's done for the geology community. When he starts talking about you, you know, I, I, I really do believe that you have seen a lot of rock and you really do understand the physical world in a- Well, he knows how I think because we've, we've crossed paths on the, on the mineralogy data set. When did that happen? So this is the conception part, kind of, when did this conversation start and, and this relationship start with you guys? 10 years ago. Ah. Did we first meet at the In Suites? 2011. Yeah, we did. You were mm. in 204. <laughs> you remember but it was the a while until I found you in mm. 204. Because I was down at Jar. I, I got to know Jaroslav a lot longer before mm. I got to know you. You're talking about a specific. Me and Jaroslav are, are, are good buddies. This is they a. go back into the pre Cambrian in Bolivia. <laughs> in Bolivia. This is talking yeah, where you. Where you sell minerals at the Tucson Gym and Mineral Show. That's what he's talking about with Room yes, 204, yes. right? So yeah. I was selling Bolivian rocks, and he met me at the hotel. We were at the In Suites uh, Hotel Show, which is now the... They keep changing the name of these hotels. I think it's the Tucson City Center Hotel. Yeah, something, it is. Something is this like, the, that like three stories and it's got a pool in the center? Right. Oh, yeah. man, that place is awesome. all these dinosaurs that used to be parked around the place. But yep. they've all disappeared. You took us there in 2018. That's right. That's the first exactly. places I took it. I don't remember eating meeting uh, Alfredo though. I don't remember. Well, because I had already moved to 2018. I think was the year I moved to La Fuente, right? I wasn't Mine there anymore. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For so some I had reason, but I took him to La Fuente too. So in fact, that was the first stop. I thought maybe the relationship was longer than that. So take us back to because because Stan is a he's a world-class scientist he's been around the world all continents except for the australia sweet thing is well he's probably traveled more than i have well that's what i want to get into so if stan is the world expert hydro uh hydrothermal geologist and has all the, the dynamic layered earth model truly that you know stan and you're alfredo petrov and you guys only met 11 years ago how did you become the mineralogist that caught Stan Keith's attention. That's what I'm really trying to. I think it's because it's through his um, hobby rather than his profession, because Stan collects super rare species of minerals. He has minerals in his collection where the total supply on the planet is measured in milligrams rather than tons, literally milligrams. Whoa. Uh, so, you know, of all the 5,000 and something mineral species on the, known on this planet, there are probably only 600 out of the 5,000 that occur in macroscopic sizes. The majority of these minerals are extremely small, microscopic things available in tiny quantities, 
and only the most fanatic enthusiasts of mineralogy <laughs> desire to own one or actually have one. And Stan has acquired In many case, of those things. Yeah. Whoa, I had no idea about those facts. So I knew the 5,000. I, I mean, I kind of have a general idea well, of rocks and minerals. I have about 4,500 of those. Right. I knew you were in probably the top 10 percentile of all humans on the planet with their, your collection. Well, you have to ask him. Well, he, he's he probably knows. in the top 1 percentile of all mineral collectors in the number of different species he has. There Whoa. are probably no more than a dozen people on the planet, literally that have as many species as Stan does. The one Russian is Kasaki. Yeah. Yeah. His, his big way, enemy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's here with his wife. He left the kids in Russia. But he has, it, you, you think it's possible to get your enemy here tomorrow, he's maybe? He's not my enemy. <laughs> it's a friendly but intense competition. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have to meet this man. That's amazing. Oh, I did not know these statistics oh, see, at I'm, all. I'm very envious because he's got a mineral named after him. In fact, this guy has a mineral named after him. What? Well, there'll be a Stanley Keithite eventually. <laughs> well, he's gonna have to he's gonna have to politic for this. What's something. the name of the mineral you've discovered? Well, they named he it didn't. Alfredo Petrovite. You can never name a mineral after yourself. That's prohibited in mineralogy. So in other sciences like botany or, um, for example, in botany, I have a friend who collects orchids. And out in the Amazon jungle, he's already discovered four new species and one new genus of orchids. And they're all named after him or his family members. That's pretty much automatic in botany or biology that the finder of a new species gets it named after them. And the same thing in astronomy with comets. If you're an amateur mm -hmm. astronomer and you find a comet or an asteroid, you pretty much have the right to decide what it's going to be named. And they'll generally, other astronomers will name it after you. But in mineralogy, it doesn't work that way. Lots of collectors find a mineral species, but they, a new one, but they never have a species named after them because an amateur mineralogist or an amateur field collector is not capable of doing all the X-ray work and crystal structure work that's necessary oh, wow. to determine whether that is really a new species or not. And the guy who does that work and publishes it is the one who gets to decide what the species name is going to be. Wow. And they very frequently don't name it after the person who, who, found. who found it. So it works differently in, in mineralogy. He's got wow. to be real good friends with Tony Camp. Who's Tony Camp? I, I recognize that name for some reason. He's a well, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of mineralogists, not only Tony Camp. But right. Tony Camp is a mineralogist at the uh, uh, Los Angeles County of uh, Museum of Natural History. But he's History. friends with guys that name minerals. And, uh, gotcha. Uh, that sounds like corruption. Edit, edit that part out. Uh, well, there are two. Um, the guy who, back in the 1980s, the guy who had named more minerals than any other scientist on Earth was Dr. Pete Dunn. Is he still around? Uh, he just died recently, a couple oh, of years he ago. Yeah, wow. he, he died a couple of years ago. But uh, he was a mineralogist at the Smithsonian Museum. Wow. And he had described the crystal structure and the new species and given the names to them. 
of more mineral species than any other mineralogist before him. Wow. Over 100, I think. However, he's got competition. Well, he got before, long before he retired, he suddenly gave it up and he didn't do it anymore. And a lot of those minerals he described, only one specimen existed. One specimen was found. It was described as a new species, given a name, and no other was ever found. So sometimes they were tiny little bits of crystals that no one ever found another one. It was a unique specimen. Wow. And I ran into him one day at the Franklin, New Jersey, at the old zinc mines. The, they have a, a mineral show. And I ran into Dr. Pete Dunn there from the Smithsonian. And I... Somebody introduced me and I said, Dr. Dunn, it's an honor to meet you. And I've been following over the years your published descriptions of new yeah. minerals. But I noticed that over the last 10 years, there haven't been any. I said, have you stopped going doing that on? kind of work? And he looked at me a bit angrily. <laughs> and I am now going to quote his exact words. Oh, man. His exact words were, those fucking little freaks of nature, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> oh, <laughs> fucking little freaks of nature. I don't know what, I mean, obviously something. That's me. The, He's probably talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> something in the mineral description world wow. must have really pissed him off or depressed him. And he just stopped describing new species. Wow. And after what? he stopped doing that, there was a Russian guy. Um, Pekov. Pekov, yes. Igor Pekov became the man who kept churning them out really fast, new mineral species descriptions. He's still grinding them out. He's still wow. grinding them out, you're right. But Is I it? think he has been, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think he has been overtaken I, now. I think by, he's overtaken Dunn. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I'm, he's definitely overtaken Dunn, but I think he has been overtaken now by Tony Kempf. Really? What? I think uh, I think Tony Camp at LA County Museum is the now race of mineralogy okay. names. Yeah, there is a friendly little competition. I'll not, although none of them will admit to it. Wow, isn't that interesting? Uh, so, okay, Stan gets uh, kind of enlightened and introduced to the geology world and the physical world through this kind of a cool story about him, you know, making trails and forts with his brother on the side of a hill in Pasadena and bang, this, all of a sudden this, these rocks are pouring over the side of a cliff and the, and then the guy who's doing it is dropping little gems and rocks. Cause he knows Stan is down there with his friends and bang, that man, you know, had a major impact. Trails is what they want. How old were you when that happened? About seven or eight. Oh, you were just a little kid. So what about you? How the heck did you, how did, how does your level of affection and affinity, I guess you'd say, just, you know, to the natural world, where did that come from? Well, I grew up on a farm. My father was a farmer in England. So when I was a little boy, I lived wow. in England. And my mother, of course, I don't remember this, but my mother says I've been bringing dirty rocks into the house ever since I was two years old. And my mom would take them out again and throw them away because they were muddy. And me and my mom would get into quarrels about how many rocks were allowed in the house <laughs> ever since I was two years old. But of course, I have no memory of that. My own memories of collecting minerals start when I was about 11 years old. And I had gone into a used bookshop in England and there were some old mineral books for sale. And I spent my pocket money buying a, um, 
Dana's mineralogy. Dana's mineralogy oh was my. the first That's what one. I did. That was the first oh. one. And I then the, the British version of Fred Poe's field guide right. to collecting minerals. The British version was a little bit different than the American one. What year was this? There. So that was in late 60s. Wow. Late 60s England, we're going to use that story. Wow. No, I was yeah. I was about 10 years ahead of him. I, I did that. Got my first Dana in 58. No, oh, it's a wonderful book. It's Whoa. Great book. I still Absolutely. have it. Absolutely. Oh, I'm, I'm not <laughs> All right, but you can't just... You know, all right, so if you grow up in the high desert, right, and it's all flat plains, and you find that book, you probably don't get really excited as a kid in the high desert looking at sandstone all over the well, place. Was, where were you in London? Well, no, no, no I, I, farm, not, not very right. far away from London. I was in a farm in southern England. Outcrops all over the place? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It was flat farmland, soil. The only rocks you would find out in the field was a flint nodule once in a while. <laughs> flint nodule. Yeah, We're down in the Cretaceous, right? Yeah. yeah. But there was a from? clay pit. A brick company had a clay pit within walking distance of our farm. Aha. And as a kid, we weren't supposed to play there, but we'd, we would go and play there anyway and sneak in when nobody was working. And out of the clay would come sometimes little pyrite nodules, Wow. Uh, little uh, doubly terminated transparent gypsum crystals. Wow. So those were kind of exciting for a young boy. But what really set me off collecting was um, two years later, when I was 13 years old, my parents moved to Ethiopia. And uh, so then I went with them and I went to high school in Ethiopia. What? I was uh, the only white kid in a, in a high school of 800 Ethiopians. Blacks. Oh, my God. Gosh. And uh, we wow. were in an active volcanic area in the East African Rift Valley. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the fault line caves of the Rift Valley where the earth was being pulled apart and uh, a, a gap was forming under the ground was this oh, fault line cave a couple miles long. Imagine a cave in volcanic rock that's absolutely straight. What? And... Um, <laughs> So I got into that when I was a teenage boy. That was quite exciting. Whoa. And there Whoa. were active uh, hot springs and fumaroles. Oh, man, I'm so and clueless like and that. uncultured in that sense. Like so. e thinking of Ethiopia, I have a good friend from Eutria, and he talks about the Eutria, mountains. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so I'm going, whoa, there's mountains. You know, I have no clue. I really have no clue on the geography. And the climate was very similar to here. I mean, it's in the tropics. But we were about six or 7,000 feet above sea level where we were, and it was semi-arid. And I would guess that the scenery and the climate was probably very similar here to Sonoita in Ethiopia. It was high Whoa. plains. For some reason, he likes yeah. high plains. Yeah. I, I do too. I mean, you're on the top of the world, yeah. basically. You're at the top yeah. of the crust, well, <laughs> near it. Fun fact, Africa is the highest average elevation continent on the planet. Right. And that ties to the African and super Ethiopia plume. is higher than most. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. I, mean, I just love it. I, I want to talk about your stuff. I was telling Stan, I said, we should probably prepare to talk to like one or two in the morning. But he said, ah, we got to eat dinner. And <laughs> well, what was also great about my high school there in Ethiopia, 
the high school actually had a chemistry lab with lots of chemicals and wow. we were allowed to go in there after school in our free time and play with the chemicals wow and it was a lot of um um you know things that you would not be allowed to do in, in right. the united states or in england the right. professors would get into trouble if they just let the children come in after school and play with the acids right <laughs> but um <laughs> I mean, something to that. Right. Yeah. So, so, and and when they found out I was interested in stones, and I was the only one interested in stones, wow. the chemistry professor took an interest in me, and he said, uh, "Do you want me to show you how to analyze a stone for phosphate content?" So, when I was about fourteen, See, now he got more into that than I did. Okay. When I was about fourteen years old, I got to. Um, grind a stone in a malter and pestle and dissolve it in nitric acid and check oh it with ammonium molybdate to see if there was any phosphate in it. And so that got wow. me ever more interested in wow. the chemistry of minerals. And chemistry in general. Yeah. Wow. But that was when I decided that I wanted to study something to do with rocks. So what is, how does your career go? You get educated, you get degrees in geology and mineralogy. Yes. Okay. Geology. And then you go into a young professional career who, like, what do you, who, what did you do for, for most of your career? My career was very atypical. So I would not recommend any young person to follow it. It was very <laughs> disjointed and chaotic and, uh, I graduated in the 1980s. I, there, the, the U.S. was in a in a recession when I wow. graduated. There were no good jobs available. I had thousands of dollars in student debt hanging over my head. And where no, did you go to school? San Diego State. Oh, that's right. Indiana. SDSU. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's where I got my uh, field camp done with Doctor <coughs> Doctor Gertie. I love you that know Gertie? Bill. No, you wouldn't. Know. Or well, the one of the main AAPG guys is out of uh, a uh, out of SDSU. Um, it ties into um, Dr. Dickinson. I remember Dr. Threat, who has since died many years ago, but Dr. Threat was one of my professors. You went and, to school, you got your uh, undergraduate and master's degree at SDSU? No, no, just undergraduate. And I, Dr. Threat was one of the last professors who did not believe in plate tectonics. He was the last holdout. Oh he was constantly gosh. looking for alternative explanations. What? Or sometimes I thought he was just pretending to because he, <laughs> want us, he wanted to force us to think and be able to back up our thoughts with uh, logical conclusions. Mm. The, the head of the department in those days was Peterson. Anyway, after I graduated, I had a lot of student loan debts and no job. And I had a brother-in-law who was working, who was a, a, one of my brother-in-laws was a graduate student at the University of Nagoya in Japan. Wow. And uh, he called me up one day and said, I heard you're having a hard time finding a good job. He said, would you consider coming to the University of Nagoya? We pay $70 an hour. You'll be working by the hour. And... Um, in the 1980s, $70 That's an hour was, yeah, it, it sounded like a wonderful income to me. Never earned <laughs> anything like that uh, <laughs> before that. Oh, okay. And uh, he said, what we need is somebody to edit research papers. 
because he said, we Japanese scientists all dream about publishing in international journals in English, but their English is so bad that the words are all English, but nobody can understand what they want to say. So oh their gosh, papers that's... are typically rejected and they come back with a rejection slip because the English isn't understandable. So then these Japanese researchers, they take it over to the English department at the university and they find some professor who has studied Shakespeare all his life and ask him to fix their research their paper. Geology paper. And the guys, <laughs> yes. A little bit and of a disconnect. As you can imagine, the uh, English literature professor screws it up even worse than it was before <laughs> because he doesn't understand what the paper was trying to say. And then it gets rejected a second time. So he said, we are really looking for somebody who can edit research papers and who understands the format that a research paper is supposed to look like. So I will said, great, this sounds like a great opportunity. So I pack my suitcase and fly off to Japan, sight unseen, without having ever seen the country before. I land there. Um, my, my introduction to Japanese society was leaving the airport and looking for a train to go to the university. I'm standing on the station platform, a lot of other people standing there, it's crowded, and there's this very serious sounding announcement in Japanese over the loudspeaker, which of course I don't understand. I, I learned Japanese. <laughs> you, in, you feel the intensity. Yes, now. now I would understand it, but at that time I didn't understand Japanese. And so um, I ask a businessman with a suit and a tie and a briefcase who looks like he might know English, I said, excuse me, what was that announcement about? Luckily, the guy did. He said, oh, the station master is apologizing because the train will come one minute late. And <laughs> I thought, hmm, surely he means I had come from countries where the train is always 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes late. It's never, ever on time. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, so I said, surely that can't be correct. They must mean it's going to be an hour late or something. But well, no, it really was one minute late. And later on, I found out that was a really rare event. That doesn't happen very often that they have to humbly apologize for the train being a minute oh late. Oh my gosh, the precision of oh, the Japanese precision. culture. The average lateness of a subway train in New York is six minutes. The average lateness of the super fast bullet trains in Japan is six seconds. And so that was a really unique Day that they were a whole minute late, and that was the first day I arrived. That oh, was my introduction to, to Japanese culture. You were the anomaly that just showed up in Japan. <laughs> and when I arrived at the university, I found that they didn't only expect me to correct geology papers, they also expected me to correct papers in electrical engineering oh, and, no. and mo molecular <laughs> biology and oh. virology and everything. I got to read all the latest medical research before it was published. It, it was a very strange. In, in the beginning, I was a little bit nervous, but later on, I figured out how to do it. Wow. This is in uh, pre-email days. The internet didn't exist yet. So the tools of my trade were a, a red pen and a bottle of aspirin. <laughs> and uh, I would go to, usually we would sometimes, we, we would start out sitting in this professor's office across the table. And 
I would read a sentence to him on his paper and say, you know, what the hell does this mean? The words are English, but it is totally non-understandable. And he would have to explain to me. So while I was doing this job, it would take hours to go through the whole paper. Halfway through, he would say, I'm thirsty, let's go to a bar. And so we would go off to the bar and continue working until midnight on this paper. Wow. Sometimes I would be in bed already and it would be midnight and the phone would ring and some desperate professor would say, Alfredo, I have to go to the airport at six o'clock in the morning. I'm flying to this conference in Vienna and my paper isn't ready yet. Can you come meet me at the bar and help me finish it? Wow. So I would get up, dress up. Take a taxi to the bar, and we would be like from one o'clock to five o'clock in the morning working on this guy's paper. And then he would say, Thank you very much, and rush off to the airport with his paper under his arm to present it at some international conference. Wow. I did this for four years. I worked seven days a week. There was oh endless amounts of work. I yeah. ended up doing it. You made at, a lot of money. Oh, I made a lot of money. Yes, I, I, I did it at three different universities. And I ended up having, there was nobody else doing it. I ended up doing, uh, working seven days a week, day and night. Alfredo, wow. Do you, did you keep track of all the papers you helped uh, communicate from the author to the rest of the world? No, I never, there were way too many. I didn't, I kept a copy. There has to be something major that was published through that time. Well, there was, uh, there was one article on viruses causing breast cancer in women. What? The, yes, and this was like totally out of my field, but I helped the guy correct his English. And uh, he got a letter from the international journal that the paper was published in saying, we congratulate you because he said, this is the first time we have ever gotten a paper from Japan that was written in perfect English. And so, of course, it was. So he called me and said, Alfredo, look at this letter I got from the journal. <laughs> Gosh, dang. How long did you do that for? Four years? And then, four years, and then you yes. Picked up something else. After four years, I was so stressed out from this over. It's full of money. Yeah. So I decided to, to basically, I was in my late 30s by that time, but I decided wow. to retire. Wow. And I wanted to retire in a country that was cheap and had a nice climate and lots and lots of minerals because that was my hobby, going out collecting minerals. And so I decided on Bolivia. Wow. So in my late 30s, I moved to Bolivia with the intention of retiring. That didn't work out very well. <laughs> you still had some piss and vinegar in you. Yes, so I went out there, I, I bought a home and uh, started collecting minerals. And what, what was the approximate year of that? That arrival? was in uh, 89. 1989. What were you doing in 89? Oh my God. Agrikin's up and running. You definitely have a project going. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was doing a lot of Nevada stuff at that point. Looking for gold, copper, anything. Yeah, big time Nevada stuff. So my intention was to retire there and spend my life doing my hobbies, gardening, growing cacti, collecting minerals on old mine dumps. 
But it didn't last very long because when the Bolivians found out there was a guy who knew something about rare minerals there, I was constantly, you know, the social circle started inevitably growing bigger and bigger. And one guy would introduce me to another guy and I started meeting mine owners and prospectors and mine owners who were running small mines and needed help figuring out what minerals they had. And wow. I started finding, you know, the level of Bolivia is a big mining country, has been for hundreds of years, a large, a big chunk of their economy depends on mining. Mm. Iron and like, like our oh, precious metals. Tin, silver, gold, yeah. bismuth. They were the world's, uh, at various times in history, they've been the world's Leading biggest producer of silver and then tin and then wow. bismuth and antimony, all kinds wow. of rare metals. There were literally as we speak there must be at least a thousand mines operating in bolivia still at oh least my yeah. gosh. and bolivia is the size of texas and california combined roughly wow in, in land a big area country. yeah and yeah. mostly empty because it's got the population of 10 million people in uh in a country that's considered considerably bigger than Texas. Yes, it's and mostly most empty. of those are in, in just a couple of towns like La Paz. Yeah, most of the people are in like five or six cities. And oh, my gosh, that, that country's empty. Oh, it is. It's pretty empty. Lots of alpacas. Yeah. <laughs> Lots yeah. of alpacas. Wow. So you're in 89. You're in Bolivia. So I'm meeting all these guys who want help identifying their minerals. Bolivia has several universities. In fact, the university in Potosi is the oldest university in the Western Hemisphere. The Spanish opened a wow. university there in the 1500s, long before. I mean, it's a pretty primitive backwater country now compared to the United States. But wow. 500 years ago, there were universities in Bolivia when there was no university existing in the United States back then. Right. Yeah. So there was a time when it was considered a fairly advanced country for its time. Wow. But nowadays, there are still universities in Bolivia, but there is no mineralogy department at any of those universities. There are mine engineering departments because there's a lot of mining. There's no mineralogy department. There is not Gosh. a single professional mineralogist in the entire country. Wow. So I started getting requests for identifying things and people were bringing weird stuff to my home all the time. <laughs> knocking on the door stan and, and would they, love that yeah you know, I don't know about that. well if you had a if you had like a dropbox like blockbuster back in the day you just got to look at what people drop by you don't want to interact so much but anyway so you're this is an unbelievable story i mean i'm getting so much from listening to your experience because it, it correlates to what's the problem in my generation you guys want opinion. another beer yeah heck yeah um i still have one if I'm allowed to drink on camera. I don't oh, yeah. Know. That's your you can, you're you encouraged to do it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You no, can grab no, another one of these. Nice yeah, I mean, this is really, this is so Arizona, you know, prickly pear. It's not a bad beer, actually. Prickly pear in the beer. Where I was going with that while Stan get, grabs some new cold ones was um, I started realizing in the oil and gas industry that I was, I'm still a part of a big part of my life is still communicating, certainly the new science magma chem to the community and saying, Hey, there's a whole new way of thinking about how these reservoirs put themselves together, which means there's a whole new way of producing these things. And it's very exciting, very cutting edge. But in my experience of being a geoscientist in the industry, I, I feel, I understand what you're saying when you 
there's a lot of engineers, but there's not a lot of people that are actually telling me what's the elemental makeup of all this stuff. What's the mineralogy of this rock? It's it's really just now starting to come out that XRF, XRD, Rocky Valve Paralysis, this ability to see the elemental makeup of the rock and actually make dis more distinctions than just simply sand, shell, and carbonates or dolomites. Uh, that's, that's, we're barely getting there. You, you started this and the mining industry started realizing this in the eighties, the nineties, they were going, what is this made out of? They're asking you those details without an XRF, without an XRD, you were doing this because of your experience. You, you kind of figure, how did you figure out what you were looking at? Well, I, you know, I had basic chemicals at home for doing wet chemical tests. And um, I had a, a binocular microscope and a petrographic microscope wow. and ultraviolet lights uh, for checking fluorescence. And every once in a while I would run across stuff that there was no way to do what it was and without x-ray. But of course I had plenty of friends back in the US with access to x-ray diffraction. And so I could just take grains to mail back to friends here in the States. <laughs> in an and, envelope. Uh, in an envelope and find out what they were. That's so awesome. I started being sort of the mineral identifier for Bolivian miners. And it was only years later that I found out that there was actually a market for minerals. I, an American fellow uh, by the name of Rock Courier, that was his real name, given name. R-O-C-K. Yes, yes. Wow. He was one of the biggest mineral dealers in the world selling specimens for collectors, museums, researchers. High-end stuff. Medicine, uh, all those kind of things. So um, he came to visit me in, in Bolivia once, and he saw that my home and my garage were full of rocks. And he said, Alfredo, you don't need this many rocks. What are you doing with so many? I said, well, I just can't bear to throw them away. And I, I trade right. with friends. I give them away to people. There's just too many. And he said, well, why don't you uh, bring some to the Tucson show and sell them? And I said, what's the Tucson show? Wow. What year is this? This is 93. Wow. 93. 93. Rock Courier? Rock Courier, yeah. yes. Rock Courier. So Rock Courier visits me in <laughs> Bolivia, and he sees a house in the garage and the garden full of rocks. I had no knowledge until then, no inkling, that there was a commercial side to mineral collecting. I had been collecting minerals ever since I was a child, but I did not know until 93 that there were people who bought and sold <laughs> these things until this big American dealer. I mean, there are hundreds. Now Emphasis I found out there are big. hundreds of mineral dealers in the United States. And this guy was a big dealer in, in every sense of the word. Rock carrier. Mm -hmm. Yes, he had a big Legend. business with 11 employees, went all over the it's world the looking for minerals to buy. And he was also a big guy, literally. He was bigger than Stan. No. Yes. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. six, five and a half, yeah, well, 300 a, pounds. Well, that's about what Rock was, but he was more but than he was Stan. Like six. Yeah. yeah. 600 six, pounds. I don't think he was that heavy. No, he, he was, was 400. Anyway. He was bigger than you. Whoa, I, we got to get your take on Rock Courier right after his story of Rock So Courier. his first trip wow. to Bolivia, it's Rock's first trip to visit me in Bolivia, we had corresponded for a while before uh -huh. he came to visit me. So I knew this man only through letters. 
And this is, email was just barely getting started wow. around that time in, in the early 90s. So my first correspondence was rock with the old fashioned way, was pen on paper and a stamp on an envelope. Wow. And we'd written back and forth to each other about various mineral topics before he came to, to actually visit me in Bolivia. He said, he said I, I travel to South America on business several times a year, he said, and Peru and Brazil mostly. He said, can I stop over and visit you? I said, sure. So I said, I'll pick you up at the airport. You can stay at my house. So I went to, to the airport to pick him up in a very beat up VW Beetle. This VW Beetle was treated like a four wheel drive car, even though it wasn't. It had spent years bouncing over rocks on old mine dumps, and it was really beat up. And I had no idea. I only <laughs> knew this man from his letters. I had no idea how big he was. <laughs> He's and, the uh, size of the fucking VW. <laughs> He's the yes. size of the so, car. to get out of this thing. So, Rock Courier, after his visit to me, he came back home and the biggest, uh, most important mineral collector's magazine in the world is probably the mineralogical, it's called the Mineralogical Record. And by coincidence, it's published right here in Tucson. Uh -huh. And uh, does Troy know the Mineralogical Record? You no. know, yeah. Well, I it, have every one of them at the house. Yeah, it's, it's published in Tucson wow. and it's known by mineral collectors all over the whole planet. Well, when Rock got back to the States from his visit to Bolivia, he wrote an article about his trip to Bolivia for the mineralogical record. And I remember word for word, every painful word of the opening <laughs> sentence. He said something like, uh, Alfredo Petrov picked me up at the airport in a car, which added a whole new dimension to the meaning of the word dilapidated. <laughs> I mean, you're a big guy too, a VW bug. Now you got. Did he actually? Did you guys drive away in that thing? And and yes, we did. We did. Wow. We that had trouble with this. Amazing. To His watch. suitcases were almost as big as him. I think we had to find rope and tie them into a pile Quick on the roof. Report that's going to get interesting in about five minutes. I don't think. Is that right? What do you mean, uh, sunset? Mm -hmm. Should we pause for a sunset watch with well, Alfredo Petra? A quick look outside. Cool. You said five minutes. Yeah. Well, we can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So we you you wrap this up. So you have five minutes right when you're done with your story, your take of Rock Courier and how you even knew about him. Your your first interaction with the guy, and then we'll go well, watch the sunset. I don't really have that many stories about him. How did you even know we about knew him? each other? Well, we knew. He, I knew him before he knew him. Back How? In 1966, when I was what? growing up in Southern California. What? How old is this guy? We were both members of the Mineralogical Society of Southern California. I was a junior, and then he was an up and coming dignitary in MSSC, as we he's, called it. He's a little older than you. Uh, Yeah, a little bit. Whoa. By about five Rock years, I guess. would have been 75. Uh -huh. Died at 75 in 2015, so that's... 80 now. Yeah, yeah so he was 10 years old. A little less. Wow. A little less, yeah. So I, I, but I just knew him as uh, on trips to Boron and things like that. He would go on MSSC. What, what was his presence like? This guy, Rock Carrier, he sounds like a true legend, like a, a man that's just... Well, just his size made him a legend. And he was extremely bigger than life, literally, and, and, and bigger than any mineral. I mean, he was just 
the guy admit you just couldn't get her. You know, and the, my mentor actually did more business with him than I ever did, Royal Marshall. Hmm. So I have several of Rock's really early minerals. What kind of guy was he, this Rock guy? Was he easy to gruff. do? My first word would be gruff. <laughs> He's a bit gruff. But he was also very generous. But once you got through yeah. the smokescreen, he was an incredibly nice guy. He did more than any other human being to internationalize the mineral specimen business. Because Tucson has had the world's largest gem and mineral show for, what would you say, 60 years maybe, Stan? Yeah, wow. it started in the mid-50s. Yeah. So Tucson is the world's well, biggest international years. market for mineral and gem specimens. People come every year from all over the world to buy and sell their rocks in Tucson. Right. And... Rock probably did more in the 70s and 80s to internationalize the business than anyone else ever did. Because when Tucson started in the 1950s, mm. it was American dealers coming to buy and sell their rocks. Mm -hmm. And you'd have a handful of guys coming across the border from Mexico with some Mexican rocks to sell. And you may have had one or two uh, snowbirds <sighs> from Canada who spent the winter down here anyway. And that was it. So it was basically a North American mineral show. Wow. There were a few guys who traveled all over the world looking for specimens in Africa and South America and so on and bringing them to Tucson to sell, but they would keep their sources secret. They had no interest in teaching those Africans or Brazilians or so how to come to Tucson to sell their rocks. Wow. Whereas rock was the opposite. Rock would travel to foreign countries he would meet somebody who had nice rocks and he would tell them, why don't you bring these to Tucson? That's a great place to sell them. To and he would help them do that. He would, in, he would bring them to Tucson, introduce them to everybody, help them become independent mineral dealers in the United Whoa. States. He rock brought it. South Africans, Peruvians, Indians, uh, Brazilians. Wow. He brought them all over here, taught them, mentored them in how to get into the international mi mineral business. And now wow. you find people from all over the world coming every year right. to Tucson to sell their rocks. I say it's every and, rock in the world all in one place yeah. for about a month and a half. Two but months. We, right. we owe that pretty much to Rock Korea. He was the wow. first one who actually tried to get the foreign dealers to come here. Like I said, the guys before Rock they didn't want the foreign dealers to come here. They wanted to buy the rocks cheap in Brazil or wherever, bring them here and sell them for a hundred times the price. Right. They wanted to, to get a rock in an African mine by trading it for a beer and then coming to the US to sell it for a hundred bucks. They didn't want the African classic, coming here to sell the rock himself. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Rock wow. was the one who started that policy. Do, at, yeah. at this point, do we know why? Including me. He got me to come from Bolivia. When he saw all these rocks in my house, he said, Alfredo, you've got to bring these to Tucson and sell them at the Tucson show. I said, what's the Tucson show? He says, you've never heard of the Tucson show? I said, no, I haven't. Why would I have heard of you it? tell him about and your shoebox of the yeah. varieties? No, that, well, that's the next thing. If he, ha if he has time to listen <laughs> oh, to I got this all endless night. anecdote. Well, we got to eat so at some point. He said, uh, so Rock said, next February, you're coming to Tucson as my oh guest. Oh my gosh. What year? 93, 94? It was 93. 93. Yes. Wow. He said, you've got to come to Tucson. And he said, the first year you come, you'll be my guest. You'll stay with me. 
And um, so I so came you'd up. you already met Jaroslav by then? No, no, no. I met Yaroslav at, uh, um, well, had I met Yaroslav or not? Well, when did you buy that guy, that old miner's collection, the mining engineer? Well, that must have been 94 then, because I met Yaroslav uh, also by mail, the same as Rock Courier. Well, that's a different story. Let me finish the Rock story. Yeah, first. yeah, yeah. So, you um, have all kinds of horses stories. Rock um, said I should come to Tucson and bring some rocks to sell and, and stay yeah. as his guest. So I had found a locality in Bolivia in the jungle for danborite crystals, a place that no one else knew. A little doubly terminated danborite crystal, small things. I fit 900 of those crystals into a shoebox. And I came with that shoebox of danborite crystals to Tucson. And I thought, this was wonderful. This is great. I, I, I had so much fun in Tucson, meeting people from all over the world, selling my rocks and actually getting money for them seeing all the other rocks that everybody else had, weird things I'd never heard of before, making lots of friends, because most of the people in the mineral business are pretty friendly. Um, it was great fun. So basically, I decided to be a mineral dealer. Then Rock was the one who dragged me into this totally new world. Wow. How's the sunset? Are we, are we taking a break? Is not it, is so it break worthy? <clears throat> it's not break worthy. Not okay. It might crash out on us. I don't know. Hmm. Yaroslav Herschel is um, a mineral. He was a professor of mineralogy at the University of in Prague in the Czech Republic. And in the Czech Republic, during uh, when when communism collapsed, that was around what 1990 Eastern Europe, all the right. communist government the collapsed and the, mm -hmm. the Berlin Wall Maybe. came down. And uh, the countries basically had no money for for a few years after the Berlin Wall came down and they stopped getting all their subsidies from the Soviet Union. All the Eastern European countries like uh, Czech Republic and Poland and so on became very poor. A uh, professor of mineralogy at the university in Prague in those days was getting a salary of $400 a month wow. and it was not enough to live on. So basically everybody was looking for moonlight jobs that they could do to bring extra money in. All the university professors had little businesses running on the side. Wow. They were either hiring themselves out as consultants to mining companies, mm -hmm. or they were coming to Western <coughs> mineral shows to sell specimens. And that's what Yaroslav Herschel started doing. He was a mineralogist at the university, a professor, so everybody trusted him. Mm -hmm that the minerals he was selling were correctly identified. He had access to his own x-ray laboratories and things. Wow. And that's a big problem in the rare species business. If you're not just selling colorful rocks for the public like amethyst and agates, yeah. a big problem in the business is rocks floating around in the market that are not properly identified. Whoa. And people put uh, names on that's them. That's why I put a lot of stock. I have a lot of Yaroslav's minerals in my rare mineral boxes up there because you know uh, this was true he was true to oh, that. i have a lot of confidence that they are what he's what they yeah. are so because he's made sure of that yeah so he actually knew yaroslav in person before i did yeah but th there's a mineralogist by the name of vandal king in um, upstate new york and he likes to joke when he sees the dealers selling these rare minerals he says some of those rare species are so rare that they're only on the label, not on the specimen. 
<laughs> That's right. And there's some truth to that. There's right. a lot of scammy, mislabeled uh, rare minerals going around now on the market. Now it's Vandal, not uh, Van, right? Well, his real name is Vandal, but everybody calls him is Van. Is that V-A-N-D-A-L? A-L, A-L yes. Okay. Uh, well, it's, it, uh, it's just yeah. remarkable that the, uh, the science of geology and mineralogy is, is so young. When we're talking, I'm talking to you and you're talking about rock carrier, you're talking about the guys figuring it out and really traveling the world and pulling the rocks together and actually saying, no, this is not a bullshit rock. This is actually the truthful, you know, rare specimen that we're talking about. And then on top of that, you're saying there's 5,000 ish minerals and only 600 ish are like hand specimens. 5,500. The rest of them are trapped in some rock. And you got to find that rock. You got to find that deposits. To me, the, the science and the business of, of mineralogy and geology is so exciting. It's so underdiscovered. We, we got to, I mean, how much fun would it be? The whole planet should be looking at down at their feet, looking for rocks and specimens and becoming a part of the natural. Well, they should be looking that way rather than at their cell phones. Well, you know, if you go to the, the Tucson Mineral Show here every year is a great place to see how little explored the planet is from a mineral point of view. Because you walk around the show and look at all these uh, wonderful minerals for sale, you realize that almost 90% of the minerals at the show are coming from a dozen countries on the world. Wow. And there are large numbers of countries with, you look at a geological map, you can see this country is not boring. This country has a complex geology. Yeah. There must be interesting minerals here. And yet there is nothing at the show from those countries. Wow. Like How, Mongolia, apparently. Yeah, when you walk around the show, you will see nothing from uh, Cambodia or Suriname or Ecuador or Guyana or Panama or Eritrea, absolutely nothing. And yeah, you wonder, you know, these, well, very rarely you'll see opal a specimen from, from there. Yeah. So you, uh, opal from Ethiopia, Eritrea, nothing. Look. Wow. <laughs> yeah. so, wow. Um, watch myself around this guy. Uh, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, it makes you think, you know, why isn't there anything coming from these countries? Yeah. It's just because nobody's looking. That's right. They're, they're on, from the mineral specimen point of view, they're white patches on the world map. The world, wow. As interconnected as we are now, there are still large parts of the world that um, mineralogists and mineral specimen people have, have not explored yet. One of the one of the minerals that I got interested in, basically because of meeting Stan, was the pyrobitumen and thraxolite, or whatever you prefer to call it. Right. And um, well, that's so, actually a that's an important distinction because they're not the same. Thraxolite and yeah, not the same. Pyrobitumen. We have to correct the entry I put on Mindet <laughs> because. Um, no, no thraxolite is actually a carrageen, so it's actually pre-oil. HC or yeah, H.5. Yeah, analytically, what bitumen is, not pyrobitumen, it's the stuff that you wind up being able to dissolve out of carrageen. 
Now, pyrobitumin you can't dissolve. Now, pyrobitumin is a whole nother thing. That's the actual residue of the high temperature oils. Mm. But mm. your point that you had a professor who wound up killing a guy. Mm. That's too bad. Um, because they, the oil business didn't have the thermodynamics right is 100%. That's a really, really important observation. Because you've got to go from a high energy source to low energy and you lose energy on the way. And then when you do that, you don't have to find the goddamn energy. And that's the problem with the oil business. And they find their energy by this stupid model called burial metamorphism, you know, in a basin. They want to pile up shit so they can find the energy to cook the damn carriage into the oil window. But it's coming the other way. And we've been seeing it in our Herkimers forever. Mm -hmm. Herkimers were screaming that at us. Yeah. You show that to these dead dinosaur guys, they're, they're just dead in the water. We made a whole webinar series on that, but let's let's talk yeah, about right. with let's the last. Back to this guy, we only got yeah. for two more minutes. Right, and I'm I'm gonna kind of wrap this up with what I think would be you know really most beneficial for our following and and for the people that listen to the Magma Chem Research Institute stuff. These, these webinars, well, and this he's content. Well, already said a lot of interest. He's on the oh. side of this. Ama this is gonna be amazing. I can add some stuff though with respect to where the Tucson Gem and Mineral Society fits into. Uh, courier story but uh, cool no we we definitely have to follow up on more with this story but when what is it about stan what do you think or how do you feel this is kind of a testimonial about magma kim in the science well when i first met uh, stan i respected him because of how serious and methodical he was about his study of these rare species. Other people just wanted to have one of each and they didn't really study it very seriously. That's kind of St what Stan was, was extremely meticulous in collecting information, um, verifying the background of a specimen to make sure that it really was what it said on the label. Yeah. He was relentless to the point of driving the dealers to exasperation in his relentless hunt for more information on each specimen. <laughs> to That's be what, sure. what Tony Nekesher accused, he used the word relentless for me. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, you have to have a lot of respect for a guy like that. He takes it seriously. He wants all his information to be verified. He's not willing to just accept what other people say on and their say-so. And I recorded in my catalog. Right. I've yeah. seen that. Have you seen the catalog? Oh, Over yeah. 19,000 bits and pieces. Bits of it. of it. Pieces of it. Yes. Truly, truly remarkable. Mm -hmm. he's, he's in there. Collecting notes section. And of course, Stan got me interested in hydrocarbons, solid hydrocarbons in rocks, because it was not something I had ever paid attention to before. So this was like opened a new window for me. I started hunting for quartz crystals that had carbon inside of them. And oh, yeah. Kind of, he brought me uh, one, yeah. that one time that you got from Fonda in New York. Yes, yes. That was a killer. The one with the diamondoids. Yeah, it in literally it. Yes. had every fucking diamondoid in it. Wow. When we did it, when we did the chromatography on it. 
Whoa. Ten diamondoids. Really clean spectra. Yeah. But, but as, as uh, Alfredo and I commonly uh, rag on the IMA because they, they won't accept chromatographic evidence for a, a mineral compound. It's, it was so obvious in it. That's a well. That's a whole nother topic that we could yeah. spend a whole day on. But the International Mineralogical Association, we call the IMA, is um, the the international body that decides whether a new mineral someone claims to have discovered mm. is really a mineral or not. You know, is it really a mineral? Um, what is a mineral? Well, that's a long. That's a whole day of discussion, right? There. Can I get a one-liner from you? A two-liner from you? And Stan, don't interrupt. Because I know you have oh, a depth on here. A naturally occurring chemical, uh, or let, let me, no, let me put it different. A naturally occurring substance with a defined chemical composition and crystal structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm a little broader than that. Yeah. As long as it has a homogeneous chemical composition, I'm good. Because I, I don't mind amorphous stuff. No, I don't mind amorphous stuff either. Actually, the IMA doesn't either. But the vast majority of substances that professional mineralogists study yeah, are crystallized. Structural Nazis. Stan and I both have an interest in non-crystallized minerals. And a lot of mineralogists are prejudiced against non-crystallized non minerals. Non-crystallized minerals, I'm, I'm not following. A solid substance that doesn't have a crystal structure. It's amorphous. Like you can't x-ray it. Yeah. So when you x-ray it, you get an example. Nothing. You get no atomic. Well, like like bitumen, for example. Bitumen is solid, but it doesn't have a crystal structure. The atoms in it are just arranged uh, at random. It doesn't build crystals like like quartz. H C and O. It's just a bunch of H C and O. Yeah, right? but what's interesting about it is if you throw it throw it through chromatography, you get all kinds of good repeatable patterns when you start burning yeah, this yeah, thing yeah, off yeah. i mean it's, it's well there can be short range order i mean that can exist even in water molecules well, in, the, in, other, the other thing about most of those hydrocarbons though is that they don't have a c-axis that's the big problem mm -hmm. so they have an x and a y and so you, you and and you can see that with the chromatography but you can't see it with an xrd machine wow doesn't have that third dimension. The other right. problem with them from a mineralogist's point of view is they don't really have a defined chemical composition because you would find mixtures of many different hydrocarbon compounds mixed together. They'll hardly ever occur in nature. You may know some exceptions that I'm not aware of, but they will hardly ever occur in nature as a pure compound. Wow. You're not going to find... Oh, Rabbitide in real life, natural cornamine. Uh, well, those are crystallized. Yeah. But I mean, the amorphous ones are rarely pure compounds. They're usually mixed like asphalt or something. Yeah, some combination. And so of a mineralogist said that's not a real mineral because it doesn't have a defined chemical wow, composition. Can't trap it, can't cage it. Can't cage it. Wow. Man, it's, 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 it's so fascinating but to it me. It's a compound. But right. It has different compounds in it. The primary tool of most professional mineralogists is their x-ray diffraction machine. Wow. That is their major tool. 
And so if something is amorphous and they can't study it by X-ray diffraction, they're prejudiced against studying it and they prefer to think of it as a non-mineral because we can't get any information out of it. Marcus Origliari is the biggest snob on that front. Yep. Wow. Gosh. Um, okay, so your interaction with Stan was obviously relentless. He's a scientist. He's he's really wanting to get down to the gnat's ass of what's going on here in mineralogy. Devils in the details. Devils in the details. How does your relationship, how has it gone since 2011 with Stan as far as your development uh, philosophically as a mineralogist? How much has he helped you become a better geologist, mineralogist? <laughs> well, I've learned a lot of things from him, especially about hydrocarbons and amorphous minerals that I didn't know before. I now pay attention to those things, which I didn't used to. Right. And I run around the world looking for new sources of them, which Stan is always anxious to acquire. That's right. <laughs> There's a pecuniary interest in the whole. Plus, he has a wonderful lizard. I really love the lizard. Has the liver, Has you ever shown the lizard? If not, you should. Has the lizard ever been on this camera? Yes. Yeah, just oh, recently. Yeah. Okay. Look at the, the you see the uh, tablecloth there with holes in it? Uh, that was him climbing. He sat on that rock for about an hour. Yeah. Okay. Stan was giving a presentation to the Geological Society of Nevada and, and Draco is in the room. The lizard is my muse. My muse, too. Are you into lizards, snakes? Rip? Nope. No? Nope. Only stands. I don't have any of my own. Very good. Very good. <laughs> um, well, I can't keep any girlfriends so. loved them. Yeah. I, I can't keep any pets myself because I travel too much. Yeah, that makes sense. You're away from home more than half of the time. It doesn't make sense to try to keep any pets. It's Wow. It would be unfair like to the pet, too. Wow. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about MINDAP? Just to, to end it, we'd like to make a plug for people to really understand that incredibly valuable source that they have at their fingertips and they just know about it. How, how did it begin? And just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, MINDAP was started uh, slightly over 20 years ago Wow. by uh, um, a programmer, a computer programmer, a very experienced computer programmer who did forensic work for the EU and various uh, high-tech things like that, which I don't understand completely over my head. Don't ask me any questions about them. But uh, he was a professional computer programmer who was also a dedicated amateur mineral collector. And he started Mindat as a database for his own personal use, basically wow. to catalog his collection. And uh, when people suggested to him, look, this is great. Why don't you put it online so everybody can use it? He did that a little bit over 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And that's how Mindat was born, where he put his uh, database online for every other mineral collector to use. And it very quickly grew into the world's largest online source of mineral information. Wow. So there is no other comparable source in the world for information on mineral localities where you can get different kinds of rare minerals, photographs of the minerals. So if you have a specimen, you compare yours with what everybody else has. There's well over a million uh, mineral specimen photographs on the database I think now. It's two million. Uh, geological maps, 
um, um, yeah. hundreds of thousands of mineral localities around the world. Um, just recently, they've started a database of uh, research papers on minerals. There are more than a million of those online now that you can get access to. Really? Bilocate, it's all geospatially all referenced. Yes. yes. They get the rough one? Everywhere, Digital from library. absolutely everywhere, even in Japanese and uh, Austria and uh, you name it, all the mineralogical publications from that country either are already or soon will be accessible on MINDED. So we talked about how the whole world, mineralogy and the business of it, you said there's a lot of white space. Is that a place where we can go and get a visual of, of really what you're saying is does Mindat have kind of captured what the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show is in a sense of a, a well, kind of a digital that's only one vector yeah well we depend on um on on contributions from amateurs a few hundred contributors volunteer their time to upload the data onto Mindat now, Jolion has programs that will scrape data from government websites, mm -hmm. for example, and geological maps and have, you know, vast amounts of data automatically uploaded onto Mindet. But information about rare mineral species from and what localities they come from and the photographs of the localities and photographs of the mineral specimens, um, these are mostly uploaded by... Uh, volunteer amateur mineral collectors wow. and some professional mineralogists who will remain nameless because their bosses probably don't um, shouldn't know how many hours every day of their professional time they are spending <laughs> uploading stuff onto Mindat. I won't name any names. Don't even mention it. But there are museum curators and mineralogy <laughs> professors who who spend vast wow. amounts of time helping us upload data onto Mindat. Wow. But it's mainly a volunteer effort by, by hundreds of, of people. Uh, I was one of the 20 years ago when Jolion Ralph first started it. He asked for volunteers to help him. And I was in the first group of six people who said, yes, I, I'll help. I was living in Bolivia at the time. So semi-retired, lots of time in my hand. I started uploading information about Bolivian mines and minerals. And then I branched out to... Uh, the Japanese mines and minerals went to live in Japan for a while and got interested in Japanese mines and, and mineralogy. Wow. And so we have different specialists for different countries. And there are countries for which we have no volunteers because nobody knows anything about them and nobody has any minerals from there. You know, we would love to have a volunteer from Ecuador upload Every information country. on Every specimens there. There isn't, there isn't anybody. That's why I talked before about the white spots on the map. Right. There's lots of white spots. Any, anybody who thinks this planet is completely explored already is dreaming. I mean, in some ways, we know the surface of the moon with more accuracy than we know the surface of the Earth. Or Mars, for that matter. Yeah. I, um, one of the wow. projects, like I told you, my intention in Bolivia was to retire, and people kept dragging me out of retirement to get involved in one project or another. One of the projects I was involved in for one year was funded by the US Embassy in Bolivia, actually by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And you wonder, what the hell does that have to do with, with minerals? But um, 
Basically, there is a part of Bolivia in the jungle where coca leaves are grown. And the DEA was working in Bolivia for many years trying to help the Bolivian police suppress the production of cocaine in Bolivia. And of course, the poor farmers who are growing cocaine, they get paid well for that, and they don't know any other way to, to make a living. Right. And so um, various stupid projects were suggested for them, like growing pineapples instead of coca. And um, after the US government provided funds for planting pineapples in the jungle to those people who volunteered to rip their coca bushes out, and when the pineapples, well, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but when the pineapples finally grew, which took two years, uh, the poor Indian farmers out in the jungle loaded up a truck of pineapples, brought them to the U.S. Embassy and said, here we are, we've got them now. <laughs> the U.S. Embassy, well, we don't want them. <laughs> we don't want them in the U.S. either. We get pineapples from Hawaii. The Hawaiians will get mad if we bring Bolivian pineapples to the U.S. <laughs> So they basically ended up dumping them because there was way more pineapples oh, than the Bolivian market God. could absorb. And so the next year they ripped out all the pineapples and planted coca leaves again. <laughs> so <laughs> I believe it a hundred a thousand. I, I tell you, I mean, this is off topic, but the billions of dollars spent on drug suppression every year by the US is the world's biggest waste of the biggest waste of taxpayer money out. It, it violates basic laws of economics. You cannot win the war on drugs. It is an unwinnable war that we have thrown billions of dollars at every year, and we are no closer to success now than we were 30 years ago when it started. It's a total waste. But no politician has the balls to stand up and say, let's wow. stop the war on drugs because it's unwinnable. Treat drug addiction like a medical problem, not a criminal problem. Wow. It's unwinnable. And yet nobody has the balls to stand up and say, let's stop. Because if any politician said, let's stop the war on drugs, that would yeah. be a death sentence for them. Yeah. Wow. So we continue wasting this money. And I was involved in that for one year as a, as a mineralogist because the, the US Embassy had the idea of supporting alternative work projects for the people who lived in the jungle planting coca. We know they're not going to stop planting coca unless they have another source of income. Right. So let's create a national park and train some of these coca farmers to be guides for tourists in the national park because the place where they grow the coca leaves is a super beautiful area. It's, wow. it's virgin jungle. You know, they keep these guys wow. keep as their coca plantations are destroyed, they just retreat deeper and deeper into the jungle to plant new coca plantations. And some of these jungle areas have, where they are currently growing coca, they have never been penetrated by human beings before. They're oh like virgin God. jungle before the coca growers arrive. Oh my God. They, they have animals, they have you know, <laughs> hundreds of new species of orchids that no one has ever <laughs> seen before. Okay, let's take a few thousand square miles of this, turn it into a national park and teach these coca growers to be park guards, park guides, and do, you know, hunt for medicinal plants or do all kinds of alternative occupations other than planting coca. And so when the National Park was established, the U.S. Embassy or the DEA through the U.S. Embassy funded a program to study this area which had never been studied before, basically virgin jungle. 
So I was part of a team of a dozen people. There was an anthropologist, a botanist, a wow. zoologist, a, 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 a hydrologist. A... It's like a real life superhero team. Is this yeah, where you it got was the a... Yes, exactly, exactly. The Danbarites were from this area, which was proposed to become a national park and later did become a national but park. But then once it becomes a national park, you can't mine Danbarite anymore. Shh. <laughs> Gosh, dang it. They're not supposed to be planting coca either, but they still are. Right. But, um, well, yes, the DEA funded this project to study this virgin jungle area. And I was the guy who joined the team as the mineral guy. My job was hopefully to find out that there were no economically valuable minerals on this <laughs> land because the Bolivian government was willing to go along with this park creation idea as long as there were no valuable mineral deposits there. Wow. So instead of having an economic geologist tell them this is where the valuable minerals are, they wanted me to do the opposite. Yeah. They wanted me to tell them that this is where there aren't going to be any valuable minerals. <laughs> so yes, we can go ahead and put a national park here. Wow. Gosh dang, Alfredo. So Petro. I got to find minerals in an area that had never been explored before. And I'm sure there were some valleys I set foot in that no human being had ever been in before. Wow. It was very exciting. It was great fun. You realized that at the time when you were walking through there? Oh, yes, 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 definitely. Sure. Yeah. I knew I was going to be finding minerals that no one had ever seen before. Wow. You ever stepped in foot on something that no, no human has? Well, I guess the volcano in Hawaii. I'm sure they don't want to stick it. Its own. But yeah. um, why I mentioned this was going back to the white patch on the map theory yeah. because. Before we started the study, the whole team got together and we had a limited budget of only $80,000, which wouldn't do anything in the US, but in Bolivia, that's supposed to fund a 12 people for a year of studying something. You know? right. So it's, it's a really low budget study and we have to decide how many thousands of dollars are we willing to spend out of the budget for satellite images, um, we contacted NASA to get satellite images. We were charged thousands of dollars for them. We wow. needed, you know, helicopter time and things like that. It all costs a lot of money and we had a very limited budget. But the problem was NASA came back to us and said, most of the area you're studying is under permanent cloud forest. We do not have any images of it. Oh my gosh. That's wow. <laughs> Alfredo Petrov, you're completely blown my mind i hope we can do a lot more shows i really hope you can stay longer anytime you're in town we got to keep this going i mean you're you're, you're such a uh, an incredibly a fountain of information a fountain of information yes that's exactly the words i was looking for a fountain of information the last thing i would say about mendad and why i was so excited to talk about mendad is because the research institute were trying to you know, raise awareness of the magma chem science, raise awareness and excitement for the, the undiscovered and, and that there's a model that allows us to be a lot more predictable, a lot more safe with what we're doing with our time and attention. It's not just simply going out there and finding things. We can be very strategic about this and we can be a lot safer about it. And the magma chem research Institute has a lot to deliver. And so one thing that's developing is a potential major TV company has now found us and they're interested about doing a story CNBC. about, I wasn't going to drop any names, but they're interested oh, wow. about producing a story about magma chem science and about graphene, graphene right. deposit. Well, 
that is has a, a major influence on alternative energy. I would love to introduce Mindat to that audience of potentially hundreds of millions of people and that they have access and, and maybe have an interview when we have, if this major TV show does happen, we would get Mindat involved and, and it's, it's a, an amazing source for people to begin this exploration, for us to begin the exploration of our own planet and stop fooling around with everything else out in space. Our fishbowl is plenty exciting, and there's so well, much more. Made notes of that. I would like to. I would like to look at this also from the exact opposite point of view, and see Magma Chem put some information on Mindat about graphene and pictures of your graphene deposits. There's nothing wow. on graphene on Mindat so far. So <laughs> first thing, you're hired. Start first. right. <laughs> First thing going on Mindat right there is graphene, graphene. <laughs> very all good, there. very good. Right on. Uh, okay. If you provide me with the information and the photos, I'll be happy to put it on Mindat. Right. And, uh, well, I have a huge graphene PowerPoint. I'll send it. Mm -hmm. I'll give that to you. And then you can bastardize it. Great. Magma Chem and Mindat can support each other. That would be fantastic. That's absolutely the end goal for us. We want to integrate. And we want to provide the people that are really starting to gravitate towards Magma Kim and say, whoa, I can't believe this story. I mean, we talked to them enough, but we're such a small group that there's it's almost impossible to really catch some good traction. But we finally are. And now you, if we get to team up with a, a source like yours and we say, look, this is Arizona, the, the maps of Arizona that Stan has about where to find well, you these. You haven't really looked at that yet, have you? This mineral, mm. new mineralogy of Arizona that's about to. He's got an exploration map of all the 900 plus well, that's, that's minerals. No exploration map for mineral collectors right now. Yeah, in the state of Arizona. And it comes with, it comes with a lot more than just here's a, area where you could potentially find these like highly sought after and exciting gems and minerals but there's a there's all the geology there's the dynamic layered earth model that sits behind that polygon too and there's so much more to that deposit and us discovering how it became a deposit and where well, the what magma chem ultimately does is it links mineralogy to geology basically yeah in an organized way that you thought you saw me being organized on rare minerals. Well, you haven't even begun to see what I do with the geology. You have a kick on it. It is. It's this fascinating. This guy is meticulous. Those are the adjectives we can stick on can on uh, stand. Uh, meticulous, relentless, <laughs> rod, tooth, and I, comprehensive. I, I plead guilty. Detailed. Yes. Yes, it's it's truly remarkable. I, I mean, we're, I'm so excited to be here, and and let's continue to do this and and build our relationships. I'm really really investing a lot into developing what we're talking about because I I believe the planet is ready to do it. I believe people are ready to do it. I believe there's cities. He's got what is it? This Uber, Uru, Uru, fake Uber, right? Well, it's a mobile car uh, fixing company in town in Tucson. It's oh, very successful. Right. And yeah, they want to do field trips. They want to do magma chem guided That's field trips. Yeah. Tell us about the geology, this big crack that we live on that's connected to Africa. If you really look at it from the moon and the, the study that he's done with cracks of the world, you're going, whoa, you know, that's a major, that's an interesting thing to talk about, you know, and the origin there's of life. Lot, and, you know, there's been a real, as Monty would put it, 
nature deficit disorder. There's been so much emphasis on computers and cell phones and all that. And I think people are, are getting tired of that. And I think they want to go back to back to nature. Right. Yeah. The problem is there's very few people that are organized say, all right, you want to do that? Here we go. So we, we need a team that can take it. Right. You have the software. Mendat absolutely is that connection. We have the models. We have the everything to answer those curiosity and the curious questions you have in outcrop, but we don't have that spatial database that allows you to say, whoa, there's that well, tenolite over here. done that, and then you've got this crazy uh, Spirifer Pollock guy. He's kind <laughs> of in that sort of you know, We've had uh, large mining companies contact Mindat about helping them custom-made programs to scrape the data. Wow. Uh, for... Um, for example, mineral associations. Wow. That can be useful to large companies because the, the, when the company geologists, exploration geologists have questions like, you know, if we find this mineral, what other minerals are likely to be associated with it? That's magma you cam, know, baby. More than that, yeah. what Mindad is perfect for and what, picking out that type of information. And what intrusive yeah. is going to be there. Yeah. Right. What magma chemistry is going That's when you see our maps. Right. Right. You're going to light up. That's unbelievable. Julian's going to love it. That's truly incredible We're to think about. We're just going to get that. Selectic Yehu and pay attention. How does Mendat raise money? How does Mendat stay afloat? Well, uh, until now, it's mostly by voluntary donations. Wow. We collect uh, money from uh, mineral collectors, mostly, who voluntarily give donations. They figure we use Mindad every day uh, to catalog our collections, so we get to use it free of charge. Mindad doesn't charge them anything, but some people voluntarily contribute. And it costs uh, quite a little, you know, it's surprising how much it costs to run a website like that when you have the hosting costs and you have salaries for programmers and you need a a much larger... you know, host server and hosting service than you do for private uh, website or my own website, which is nothing. Right, <laughs> yeah, blog site. <laughs> so it's um, a, a lot of money. We need a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, wow. which is a lot less than, than what a site like Wikipedia needs, obviously. Yeah. We're still very small compared to that, but it's still a significant amount of money. Yeah. And a rock courier who has been mentioned before in various contexts this evening. Uh, he left a considerable amount of money to Mindat in his will wow. since he had no family. Oh my God. And so we acquired uh, Rock Courier's uh, some funding from his estate, wow. which has been wisely invested and now brings in some money. His idea was to create a longevity fund for Mindat so we wouldn't spend his money, we would invest it and then live on the proceeds. But the proceeds that it brings in are less than half of the operating expenses. So a few mineral collectors mistakenly now think, oh, we don't have to donate to Mindat anymore because they've got the, the rock courier inheritance and they don't need money anymore. But that's wrong. That, that's wrong. That brings in less than half of our operating expenses. We have had a few contributions from major research projects like the rough project here at the mm. University of Arizona. They have made contributions to Mindat. 
because they use our data for their own work. Wow. And we've been hoping for contributions from mining companies who have the most money and are the most stingy in distributing it. I don't think, I can't remember if we've got any contributions from mining companies or not. It's either been very Ever? small or nothing, yes. Oh my gosh, that is, that right there explains and, and is an interesting dialogue, I guess, between the disconnect of the reality of where we are as human beings. You have a, a total, a trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar business of searching for mining material for metals and minerals. That's what they get paid to do. You have a nonprofit that says, here's the worldwide database of us trying to figure out where they all come from and what they're all made out of and controlling it. And they don't fund it. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, Jolion is currently in discussion with a large international mining corporation about building a custom-made pro, which of course Mindad would charge for. I mean, Mindad is a non-profit educational institution. Yeah, but it's for them. So the things yeah. we can charge money for are limited. Right. But if Mindad, for example, if Jolion has to make a custom-made program to help this mining company scrape specifically the data that they are interested in, then of course Mindat will charge the mining corporation for that. And this will be something that helps the mining corporation because they'll get the data in a format which is most useful to them. And it will also help Mindat raise the funds that they need yeah, but for operating. The, the mining company will get exclusivity on that too. Exactly, it won't yeah. help the general public. Well, the general public has access to Mindat free of charge. Right. You, know, you can look up any data you like right, free right. of charge. It's incredible. I mean, he uses it every day. Every day, the you know, world's expert of, of cataloging minerals is using and Mindat. And what we highly recommend, and not everybody knows, is that every user of Mindat should register. It's free of charge, get mm. a password, and be a registered user of Mindat and log in every time you use with your password. I don't know if you do that, Stan. No. You gave but, me one, but yeah. I haven't used it. Well, because the problem is that in order to reduce the load on the server, because we don't have enough money to have a giant servers like Facebook or Wikipedia have. So in order to reduce the load on our server, anybody who, who doesn't log in has access to limited amounts of data. If you're a registered user and you log in, you have access to certain things that the general public doesn't see. So we recommend all of you out there who like to use Mindat's information, Register. become a registered user. It's free of charge. It really helps. And then log in when you use so Mindat. So what do you get that your... the general public doesn't get? Well, you can get, for example, changes logs. You can find hmm. out who added a specific part of information. And that might be useful to you sometimes. Right? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Really cool. Um, uh, you can yeah. add more information yourself and upload your yeah, photographs, which you I can't know. do if you're not logged in. If you're not logged in, you can see other people's photos, but you can't uh, add well, any I mean, new what's photos. out there in the public domain on this site has kept me busy. I haven't felt any real reason to <laughs> right. Besides you're helping them out. You need you need to register, you need to log in every time you use it. It helps the internet. It helps it be more efficient. 
And yeah. then uh, we encourage if anybody feels like donating a small amount of money to Mindet to help it, we recommend sponsoring pages. Mm. You can sponsor species pages or locality pages for $50 a year, or maybe it's gone up to That's $100 it? a year, right? $100 a year. Maybe now. I'm not sure. It recently went up, inflation. Wow. But uh, for $100 a year, you can sponsor your favorite locality, or you can sponsor your favorite mineral. Wow. And in the top right-hand corner of the page, it will say, sponsored by Dr. Stanley Keith or Dr. Troy right. Tittlemeyer. <laughs> no, Magma Chem. Magma Chem, yes. Yeah, Magma Chem yeah. Research yeah. Institute. Has All right, last question. <laughs> last question, we'll go to dinner. Does anybody know how Rock Carrier had got his name? What's the story on that? It's that his way. honest to good name. His father was a famous surgeon and his name was Currier. That was his surname. And his mother named him Rock because his, brother, his mother was a fan of the uh, actor Rock Hudson, I think. I think that was how he got his name. Wow. So it's a perfect name for an international mineral dealer to be a Rock Currier, but that is his name on his birth certificate. What an unbelievable. People story. think he made it up for his right. business, but he right. didn't. That's an unbelievable story. Alfredo Petrov, thank you so much for sharing this time. You're um, most welcome. I enjoyed, to be it. Here. enjoyed it so much.